Yay old man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And to some degree, this is a bit of a bonus episode, because circumstances this week meant that I could have an episode released with a relatively short turnaround from my last recording. There were a lot of films I was interested in that were released cinematically this week, but fortunately, three of them I already had reviews of in the bag, because they were all Oscar contenders of one type or another. Indeed, two of them were on the 15-film long list for the International Feature Competition this year. So, earlier in the year, I made sure I watched all these three films through extra legal means in order to consider them in my Oscar preview. And when I'd watched them, I recorded my reviews of them at the time. So there were three films released cinematically this week, which I already had reviews for. So I thought, okay, this is a good opportunity. I can just put those out, watch a couple of streaming films and Netflix films to bulk up to an episode. And here we are with a relatively quick turnaround. So in this episode, cinematically, we have the French film Two of Us, the Ivorian film Night of the Kings, and the American independent film, which was low down on the gold derby lists of Oscar potential, The World to Come. On streaming platforms, we have Justin Simeon's new film, Bad Hair. And on Netflix, we have the Mexican feminist parable, I guess you'd call it, Tragic Jungle, and also the documentary, Hating Peter Tatchell. So that should end up being a decently sized episode with a quick turnaround. So without further ado, let's get on with the reviews. Big screen. The first pre-recorded review I have for you is for the French film Two of Us, which was on the long list for International Feature Oscar this year and had a lot of buzz surrounding it. And it was a little bit surprising when it didn't end up getting a nomination. But it was high profile and it has out cinematically this week. So here is the review I already have in the bag of Two of Us. Archive start. So it is early April and I have watched through extra legal means Two of Us, which I don't think is a title which works quite as well as its original French title, Deux. But regardless, this was one of the films which was on the 15-film shortlist for Oscar nomination in the international feature category. 
and it was actually widely expected to get an Oscar nomination for Best International Feature. It did get a Golden Globe nomination as Best Foreign Language Film, as they still call it, and everybody assumes that it would end up with an Oscar nomination, but it didn't happen. It is the feature-length debut of French-based Italian director Filippo Maneghetti and tells the story of two women in their 60s, Martine Chevalier and the German actress Barbara Sokova, who are neighbours on the top floor of a nice apartment building in suburban France. It's never specifically said, but it turns out this film was shot in Montpellier in the south of France. But these two women in their 60s are neighbours, and to the outside world, they are just good friends. And that includes to Martine Chevalier's children, Leah Drucker and Jérôme Varanfrain. But they are sharing a secret. For decades, they have been lovers in secret, and their dream is to move in together and essentially run away to Rome in Italy. But before this happens, Martine Chevalier needs to tell her children and her adorable grandson but she just cannot bring herself to do it because of the disapproval and the antagonistic relationship she has with her son, Jérôme Varenfrain. So she chickens out of telling her children that she wants to run away to Italy with her lover who lives next door. But before she can confess this to her children, and before she can mend bridges with her lover Barbara Sokova, who is angry at her because she chickened out, Martine Chevalier suffers a stroke, and can therefore no longer speak. And thanks to this, her wishes regarding the nice German lady who lives next door cannot be acknowledged and cannot be dealt with. And these two women might just have to live with being apart for the first time in decades because the children of Marcin Chevalier cannot and will not acknowledge the true love of their mother. So yeah, I think this is uh, largely a film about LGBT erasure. I think this kind of situation where same-sex couples were not allowed to be together, were not allowed to openly acknowledge their love for each other for decades, particularly in the face of familial disapproval. And the troubles that Barbara Sokova has in trying to get access to Martine Chevalier after she has this stroke and after she cannot speak anymore. 
is really painful to see. And that is the, the core of this film. More than anything, this is Barbara Sokova's film. I mean, Barbara Sokova is an excellent actress. She's German, as I said. And I mean, personally, I know her from the excellent film Hannah Arendt, which was gone about five or five, ten years ago now. But apparently she worked a lot with uh, Fassbinder as well. So Barbara Sokovia is a very well-respected German actress and, from what I can tell, speaks fluent French, which is really impressive. I think there's a couple of moments where she slips into German, where she's sort of admonishing herself and, crucially, when she's drunk. But this is basically entirely in French. And, yeah, it's fascinating seeing this woman who desperately loves this woman next door they've been together for roughly 20 years but martin chevalier cannot and will not acknowledge and accept what her family might think of her particularly her antagonistic and disapproving son and when Barbara Sokova realises that Martin Chevalier hasn't confessed to her family. She shouts at her and storms off. And of course, before they can kiss and make up, Martin Chevalier suffers the stroke. So Barbara Sokova, as well as having a lot of love for this woman, also has a lot of guilt for this woman. And yeah, it's, it's painful to see and it's very, very well portrayed by Barbara Sikova, and I suppose Martin Chevalier as well. I mean, for the overwhelming majority of this film, Martin Chevalier is silent and stationary. There is so much acting going on with Martin Chevalier's eyes in this film. There's a particular scene where Barbara Sikova and Martin Chevalier's daughter, Leah Drucker, are having a conversation with each other. And on the surface, it's a relatively innocuous conversation. But because of the knowledge that we as an audience have, we know that there's a lot of undercurrents going on in this conversation. And the scene plays out just gradually zooming in on Martine Chevalier's eyes. How she is looking, what she is looking at tells us so much about what her thoughts and opinions are on this conversation. And she just can't say anything. She can't give her viewpoint. She can't give her opinion. She's not being allowed to give her opinion. And I think the the implication for the majority of this film is that if Martin Chevalier had come clean And if she had allowed her children to adjust to this situation, it might have been okay, but she just left it too late. And now she's trapped, both metaphorically and physically, in this situation and is struggling to get out and wants to get out, but can't. And and things really go off the rails. I mean, There reaches a point where Leah Drucker has an inkling that something possibly might be going on with the nice German lady next door. But the way it is confirmed, I mean, the de facto coming out scene in this film, 
is one of the weirdest and one of the most uncomfortable I think I've ever seen. But crucially, it has been set up throughout the course of the film. There is a setup and payoff for how that quote-unquote coming out scene plays out that is very, very well done. And in general, I think the script by director Filippo Maneghetti and Malison Bovorazmi is very, very good. Showing this long-term relationship, showing the ways it needs to be hidden, how it functions, and the troubles of, of trying to get it to work again. I mean, as I suppose would be natural in this kind of situation, once Martin Chevalier does have the stroke, a home help is hired by Martin Chevalier's children. And then Barbara Sokova has to get her out of the way as well in, in order to spend time with the love of her life. Uh, and that kind of reminded me a little bit of Parasite. I mean, the schemes that Barbara Sokova has to get rid of this home help, this nurse, is Machiavellian and oddly kind of funny, but does have legitimate consequences as well. So, yeah, the lengths to which Barbara Sokova goes in order to be with the woman she loves is one of those situations is kind of tragic and beautiful at the same time. And it's really well done. And yeah, I think as a director, Filippo Maneghetti has some good stuff here as well. I mean, the film opens with a little prologue, which turns out to essentially be a dream sequence. And I have to admit, not everything that's in these dream sequences I understand or has context. But these dream sequences recur throughout the course of the film. And... They have a really interesting soundtrack. I mean, there's a lot of coring crows in these flashbacks. And I think the sound design of this film is actually very, very good. I mean, there's one scene of heightened drama and tension for which the soundtrack is an industrial washing machine. There's another scene in which we spend a long, long time on an unattended frying pan and the noise of this frying pan gradually gets louder and louder and louder throughout the scene and has that building sense of dread. So yeah, the the sound design is something which I don't often praise, but I do feel the need to praise in this film. And I think the structure, I mean, after this little dream sequence at the beginning, we have a snapshot of this relationship. I mean, these are two women who are in their 60s but are clearly deeply in love with each other. They have physical passion for each other. They have contentment with each other. They have companionship with each other. We see them go shopping and Martin Chevalier picks out a blouse for Barbara Sokova and Barbara Sokova says, really this? but she buys it anyway, and in a crucial scene later in the film, that blouse is what she is wearing. We see them waking up in the morning and having breakfast together, and just being together in that kind of comfortable way. We see them dancing to a particular song, which is a really, really interesting choice. It's an Italian cover of the song I Will Follow You 
from the 1960s. And over the end credits, this Italian song plays. And it's a really interesting experience because the Italian lyrics that fit into this melody are a very different song to the English one that I'm familiar with. So seeing those lyrics play out and you know, subtitles come up, which they've been translated into French over the end credits, and then obviously the subtitles are in English. So having an English translation of this Italian translation of an English original and making it a very different song is kind of strange, but it's actually kind of perfect. It's thematically important. It's emotionally important. And it's a very nice structure for this relationship. So, yeah, we see that these are two women who are comfortable with each other, yes, but also still are very much in love. And circumstances are forcing them apart, and it's kind of tragic. The way that you know, Leah Drucker, the daughter, reacts very, very badly when her tiny suspicions are confirmed. And it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction that you know, we, we cannot allow this to happen. But she starts to to gradually come around. Uh, And you do get the impression that if Martine Chevalier had been braver earlier, things might have been better, might have been different. But as things are, it's a, a really difficult situation. And it's very, very well portrayed. This film is well acted, well directed. The script is excellent. I mean, all round, I think Two of Us is excellent. I haven't done my full Oscar preview deliberations yet, but at time of recording, and I'm very, very close from actually recording my Oscar preview show at the moment, but at time of recording, I think my personal Oscar nominees for Best International Feature will include this film, The Two of Us. So, yeah, I think this is an excellent film. I thoroughly recommend it. At time of recording, it seems that it's going to be available at the end of May, and I hope that's true, because I really, really like this film. I think all around it works. It's poignant, and it's got a a bit of a gut punch to it. But Two of Us is excellent, and for me, I thoroughly recommend it, and it is a yay. Archive finish. So yeah, I did really, really love Two of Us. To the extent that in my Oscar preview show, I say that Two of Us should have won the International Feature Oscar this year, despite the fact it wasn't even nominated. In my personal list, another round from Denmark didn't make the cut. And I do also prefer this French film, Two of Us, over the Romanian documentary Collective, which I couldn't stop raving about last year. I think this is an outstanding film. I thoroughly recommend it. And I do solemnly swear that as soon as it is feasible and practical for me to do so, I shall pay for the two of us because I did watch that illegally. Honestly, at this point, I would be somewhat surprised 
if two of us wasn't in my top 10 films of the year. I mean, we're in July now, we're over halfway through the year, and I'm pretty sure that two of us is going to make the cut as one of my top 10 films of 2021. I like it that much, and I urge you to check it out at the cinema, or I also believe it's available through Curzon Home Cinema. Just as much buzz as there was around two of us at the International Feature Oscar this year, even more buzz was surrounding the next film, which I have a pre-recorded review for, Night of the Kings from Cote d'Ivoire. This was heavily tipped to be a nominee for the International Feature Oscar this year, but ended up not making the cut. But it was on the 15-film long list, so earlier in the year I did make sure I acquired a copy of it in order to include it in my deliberations. And here is the review I recorded a few months ago of Night of the Kings. Archive start. So it is early April and I have just finished watching through Extra Legal Means the Ivorian film Night of the Kings. This was on the 15 film long list for nomination in the international feature category at the Oscars this year, but did not get nominated, which it was kind of expected to. This was supposed to be the year in which a sub-Saharan African film finally broke through and got real international recognition and international acclaim. The history of African cinema at the Oscars is not actually particularly good, particularly from sub-Saharan Africa. In 1976, an Ivorian film actually won the foreign language Oscar, as it still was called then. But that was a film which was directed by the white French director Jean-Jacques Arnaud. And since then, as far as sub-Saharan African goes, we've only had two nominations and indeed one win for South Africa, which is culturally a little bit different, a little bit separate from Africa as a whole, I would suggest. And even if you include North Africa, it's not all that much better. We've had five nominations and one win for Algeria, one nomination for Mauritania, and one this very year for Tunisia. And the foreign language Oscar slash international feature Oscar has been going since 1956, and that's all the contribution that Africa has had to the entire history of that category. And yeah, it's, uh, it is changing. The fact that two out of the 15 film long list were African this year is, I think, progress. But the actual nominees look pretty much as they always do in the Oscars. We have one film from Western Europe, two from Eastern Europe, one from East Asia, and one from North Africa as the actual nominees. And that's a pretty standard profile of actual nominees at the Oscars. But 
This was supposed to be the big breakthrough from sub-Saharan African filmmaking. Because this is a film which premiered at the Venice Film Festival, and it's also from a director who has an increasing international profile. Philippe Lacotte is an Ivorian director. And since that film in 1976, directed by Jean-Jacques Arnaud, Cote d'Ivoire has submitted two further films to the Oscars. In 2015, they submitted Run, and this year they submitted this film, Night of the Kings. And both of them have been directed by Philippe Lacotte. So he is a director with a growing reputation. And this was supposed to be the big breakout. I mean, yes, in America, this film was bought for distribution by Neon, one of the more prestigious independent film distributors. And supposedly this film is getting a UK release in June. So maybe this is finally a film from Western Africa, which is going to get some high profile. but. Yeah, Philippe Lacotte, I think, is only at the start of his really important career as an international director to watch. And I do understand why this film has got so much praise from places like Venice and Toronto. Because it is a film which feels very West African, very of its time and place, but also has elements of quote-unquote western cinema which add to the mix and make it very intriguing a young man played by bakari kone is sent to the maka prison in the middle of the ivorian jungle this is a lawless place which is essentially run by the inmates themselves The guards just throw them all together, lock the door, and leave them to their own devices. And the ruler of this Maka prison is Blackbeard, played by Steve Tienchu, who was in the French film Les Miserables last year. But Blackbeard is dying, and the custom and tradition of this environment is that when the ruler of the prison is ill and can no longer rule, he is expected to take his own life. To stave off this inevitability, the ruler of this prison, Steve Tientiu, announces that this new inmate, this new young man, is the new Roman, the new storyteller. And for one night... He is expected to tell all the prisoners a story, tell a tale. And it just so happens that this new prisoner, Bakari Kone, his mother was a griot, a traditional storyteller, a keeper of folklore and tradition. So he has some experience in telling stories, or at least seeing how they are performed. So he starts telling this tale of a local crime kingpin who he supposedly knew as he was growing up. But the way that people interact with him, 
he starts to realise that once he finishes his story on this night of the blood moon, he will be killed. So suddenly he has to tap into his inner Scheherazade and keep the story going as long as possible. And if he can tell a story throughout the entirety of this night, the night of the blood moon, maybe, just maybe, he might survive his second day in prison. So yeah, this is a very unusual film, I think. It's got such a heightened reality to it, such a surreality to it. It feels like an environment, a situation, which doesn't have a great degree of veracity, a great degree of truth to it. This idea of a prison in the middle of the Ivorian jungle where essentially the inmates are running the asylum, where these traditions and customs are so codified. There is a culture entirely contained within the walls of this prison with all these rules, all these things that need to be agreed to. I am expected to kill myself, but if I announce a new Roman, I can stave off my own execution for another day. If I announce who my successor is, that will be adhered to. If I announce there is to be a big feast, I can make that happen. And I can demand a story from this new inmate in order for him to survive the night. It just feels such an odd society, an odd culture which has emerged within this prison. I don't entirely believe it. And I'm not supposed to. I mean, this is a very, very heightened reality. This storytelling turns into almost a case of experimental theatre. It's a very interactive experience with the people surrounding this nervous new inmate at the centre who is telling this story. And periodically, the audience starts participating. They start using mime to act out certain elements of the story. That at one point, they start singing a lament of something which is happening in the tale. This is a very interactive, performative entertainment which is being put on. It has its fantastical elements to it, even its magic realist elements to it. And this includes the narrative of the story that is being told. And I think the point that Philippe Lecotte was trying to make with this film is trying to encapsulate the entire history of Western Africa of a country like Cote d'Ivoire in one narrative. I mean, in this tale that Bakari Kone is telling of this semi-legendary crime kingpin who everybody knows the story of, everybody knows the legends of, in this story, 
so many elements are drawn into it. As the story progresses, as Bakari Kono realises he needs to extend the story, needs to make it as elaborate as possible in order to survive, he starts the story in pre-colonial Africa, in a tale of tribal war, using magical elements and even witchcraft in a tale of a brother and sister who are fighting for the throne. And in this particular story, in this particular narrative, we have actually some use of CGI. I mean, this is not an effects blockbuster by any stretch of the imagination, but it does have some special effects. It does have some CGI elements. This is a country like Cote d'Ivoire managing to put some Honestly, not too bad CGI into one particular scene. Trying to meet Hollywood on its own terms. And yeah, it kind of works. And I kind of see why people took notice. It's like, oh, Cote d'Ivoire can actually do this kind of stuff now. Maybe we should pay attention to it. And it ended up doing well at the Venice and Toronto Film Festival. But anyway, we have this pre-colonial story of magic and witchcraft and supposedly this legendary street gangster grew up in this environment and then we have elements of you know a gritty modern day street gang story which at one point specifically and directly references the brazilian film city of god so we have this odd combination of this traditional griot storytelling and world cinema and how it blends together into this narrative, into this tale. And it also brings in real-life political turmoil from Cote d'Ivoire with real archive footage of the armed insurrection which essentially amounted to civil war in which something like 3,000 people died when the president of Cote d'Ivoire, Laurent Gbagbo, refused to leave office once he lost the election and basically sparked a civil war on the streets of Abidjan. And we have real archive footage of Laurent Gbagbo and the armed insurrection, the political turmoil which he created. So. These larger-than-life magic realist elements, these elements of 21st century and 20th century cinema, and these elements of real-life political turmoil are all brought together into this one narrative, which to some degree is the narrative of Western Africa, which I think is clearly what director Philippe Lacotte was trying to do. And I think he mostly succeeds. I think he has created a really interesting atmosphere with this very performative, very interactive way that the story is told, how this entire inmate population is drawn into this story. I mean, it's also, I think, a film about the power of storytelling, the necessity of storytelling in this environment which sometimes has an air of menace, sometimes has an air of camaraderie, but always, always has 
an air of masculinity, with one notable exception. There's a character in this prison, in this film, who dresses like a woman. They are never referred to by name, but in the credits they are listed as sexy. And this very feminine person has a status in and of himself slash herself. I'm not quite sure if this is a transsexual character, a transvestite character, or a drag queen, or some combination thereof, but they have their own power, their own status, apart from the rest of this prison. But apart from that one character, this is a very, very masculine environment. And yet, they drop everything they stop their petty squabbles, you know, the war of succession, which is inevitably going to come because the old king, quote-unquote, has not named his new successor, and there are two obvious candidates who both want the job, and there's going to be chaos as soon as Steve Tientiu succumbs to the inevitable and kills himself, according to the rules and customs of this prison. So there is chaos coming. There is essentially a civil war coming. And it's a very masculine environment. But everybody stops for the story. Everybody interacts with this. Everybody enjoys this. Everybody is drawn into this tale, despite the fact it stretches over centuries of West African history. It has very little logic. and. It's clear that, but I didn't tell you about this little bit. I didn't tell you about this little bit. He's just trying to extend the story and extend the story and extend the story, you know, doing the Scheherazade thing of the longer I keep this story going, the less likely I am to die. So as a narrative, if you wrote it down, it wouldn't actually make much sense. But in this environment, you're drawn into it. And yeah, I mean, the power of storytelling, the way that oral history can work and interact even up to the modern day the way you engage with it that's what this film is about and i think it does to some degree encapsulate the whole of west african history and i think it's a rather interesting film i did like it i preferred other international film oscar contenders this year over it so i'm not too upset that it didn't make the list as an actual nominee at the Oscars, but on the terms of being an interesting slice of world cinema, I do basically recommend Night of the Kings, and for me, it's a reasonably high meh. Archive finish. Personally, I think Night of the Kings is one of those films that I admire rather than like. And I'm absolutely fascinated to see what Philippe Lacotte comes up with next, because I do believe we are at the tipping point for sub-Saharan and Western African cinema. When you have the capability of doing some of the impressive CGI work that is in Night of the Kings, you open up so many new avenues. And yeah, I think there are exciting things to come from Philippe Lacotte and Cote d'Ivoire. 
And I do basically recommend Knights of the Kings if you can find it. I mean, this is one of those ones that's been giving a very haphazard limited release, but I'm sure if you search for it, you should be able to find Knight of the Kings. And the final pre-recorded review I have for you in this particular episode is for the American independent film The World to Come. This is one of those films that was on the Gold Derby lists of Oscar potential, but very low down. But I had a look at the premise and I thought, okay, that's the type of film that might be interesting to me. So I did make sure to watch it since I had access to it. And now it is out legally here in the UK. It is time to release the review. So here is my review of The World to Come. Archive start. So, I have watched through extra-legal means The World to Come. This was listed on the Gold Derby lists of films with Oscar potential, and I saw it was available on the pirate sites I used, and it looked like it might be my kind of film, so I thought, okay, let's give this a go. Let's see if it ends up anywhere near my personal Oscar race. It is directed by Mona Fastvold, the Norwegian actress-cum-director, who is possibly best known as the partner of Brady Corbet, the actor-turned-director who is American but now based in Europe. Brady Corbet has directed a couple of films now, both of which were co-written by Mona Fastvold, and Mona Fastvold's previous directorial effort, The Sleepwalker, was also co-written by Brady Corbet. In fact, of all the films that either Mona Fastvold or Brady Corbet have directed, they've been co-credited screenwriters on all of them except this one. This script is based on a short story by Jim Shepard, who co-writes the screenplay with Ron Hansen. And Brady Corbet gets extensive thanks in the credits of this film. He acts as a producer on this film, but he did not write or direct it. But this is definitely a team of filmmakers a husband well they're not married but you know de facto husband and wife filmmakers very much like Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach I guess I mean they've also just had a kid together so yes Mona Fastvold is the partner of Brady Corbet but this is to some degree her stepping out on her own in this adaptation of a short story by Jim Shepard in which a farmer's wife in the wilderness frontier of upstate New York in 1856, played by Catherine Waterston, is eking out an existence with her husband, Casey Affleck, when a new family moves in next door. The wife, played by Vanessa Kirby, with her somewhat controlling, somewhat taciturn husband, Christopher Abbott. These two farmers' wives who live next door to each other in a very remote, isolated region start spending a lot of time together 
and gradually an attraction forms between these two women, and soon they are the centre of each other's worlds. They cannot live without each other, and this connection, this friendship, is noticed by their respective husbands. So how will this all play out? So yeah, I mean this story of lesbian farmers' wives on the frontier of mid-nineteenth century America, that sounded like an interesting film. It sounded like my kind of project. And the cast is excellent. So we have Vanessa Kirby, Catherine Waterston, Casey Affleck, Christopher Abbott, all actors I really admire and respect. So it seemed like my kind of film. Unfortunately, it really didn't work. The fundamental problem with this film is the script, is the way it has been adapted from the original short story. The original short story by Jim Shepard takes the form of journal entries. The character played by Catherine Waterston writing down her thoughts, having an impression of what a year as a farmer's wife in 1856 in upstate New York would be like. And gradually as she writes these journal entries and she as she starts spending more and more time with the neighbour next door, the writing becomes much more about the relationship with the next-door neighbour, or at least from the brief research I've done, that seems to be how it plays out. And that's fine. That's an excellent format for a short story. But it's not an excellent format for a film, which is essentially what they've done. The use of voiceover in this film is so pervasive, it's a real, real problem. So many of these journal entries that Catherine Waterston is writing are just read out verbatim, or seemingly verbatim, from the short story. And we are never allowed to experience what the connection is between these two women. We are just told what the experience is between these two women. Eventually, it just feels like we're stopping the actual story in order to have voiceover. It's stop, start, stop, start, going from one format to the other, and back and forth and back and forth. It eventually feels like we're stopping the actually very well-played romance between these two women in order to just be told what they're feeling. And it breaks the flow, it breaks the momentum. And it's just not the right format for a film. A film is a different format from a short story, and trying to put the same framework, the same structure in this film as is in the short story just doesn't work. I mean, this is a criticism I've had of other films in the past. I mean, the Terence Davis adaptation of Sunset Song, I pretty much said exactly the same thing. The Austrian Oscar entry from a few years back, The Wall, had a similar thing. With so much of the original source material just being read out, 
we may as well just be reading the short story. If we are making a film, if you are making a visual experience, let it play out. Especially when, when they are given the opportunity, the two women at the centre of this film are playing it exceptionally well. The scene in which the two women finally kiss for the first time is so brilliantly played. I mean, it is one of the best scenes of that nature I've ever seen. I mean, it's a a story I've seen so many times, particularly in LGBT cinema, you know, the point at which you just can't help but kiss the person next to you. You are so drawn to them that you have to kiss them. And you might be rejected, you might be about to make a terrible mistake, but you have to kiss them. And the way that Catherine Waterston and Vanessa Kirby play that scene is exceptionally well done. It really is. And I did notice, I don't know how deliberate this is or how deliberate it could be given the editing process, but I did notice that that first kiss between the two women takes place at almost the exact halfway point in this film, which I did find rather interesting. But Anyway, I'm not sure how deliberate that was, but if it was deliberate, kudos to Mona Fastfold. But anyway, when they are together, when they are interacting with each other, it's brilliant, it's magnetic. You can see the connection between these two women. But all too often, we go away from that in order to just be told what's going on in a voiceover, to the extent that there are a couple of scenes where conversations are happening between these two women and the audio fades down, and then we just have more voiceover. And it breaks the flow. It just doesn't work in the slightest. And it's really frustrating because I think Somewhere in Here is a really, really good film. I mean, like I said, the scene where they first kiss is excellent. The way that the sex scenes in this film are handled is also excellent done in a way I'm not sure I've ever seen done before, but it really does emphasise the emotion of this relationship rather than the physicality of this relationship. And that is something I do appreciate. And I do like the way that actual physical sex is handled in this film. Very unusual, very interesting way of doing it. So there's definitely good stuff here. There's definitely good acting particularly from Catherine Waterston, who I think is excellent. Casey Affleck also has his moments as the supporting actor, the husband who can clearly see that his wife, Catherine Waterston, is drifting away from him, and he has very strong suspicions as to why Catherine Waterston is drifting away from him. But it's just something he's going to have to put up with and endure with stoicism. And yeah, that's well handled. I mean, the toxic, controlling relationship that Christopher Abbott has with his wife, Vanessa Kirby, also very well played. And the much more free-spirited, less concerned with propriety woman that comes into this restrictive, somewhat religious frontier life, played by Vanessa Kirby, also excellently played. So, yeah, the acting is excellent. 
when it's given a chance to breathe, when it's given a chance to connect. But all too often, we just stop the acting and have more fucking voiceover. So, yeah, having the original short story writer co-write the screenplay perhaps wasn't the best idea. But even then, having Mona Fastfold just write it herself. I mean, the last film she did with Brady Corbet was Vox Lux, which I hated with a fiery passion. I wasn't a massive fan of Brady Corbet's debut feature as a director, which Mona Fastfold also wrote, Childhood of a Leader. The one thing that Mona Fastfold's done that I've actually really liked is she co-wrote the Matthew Sconart's starring film, The Mustang, which is actually pretty good. So yeah, I mean, I admire Brady Corbet and Mona Fastfold, but I don't actually like a lot of their films. And unfortunately, I didn't like The World to Come. It's not a movie. It's a visual accompaniment to a short story, and it's really not trying to hide the fact. And it's so frustrating because the acting is good, but as a film, which is what this should be judged as, it just doesn't work because of the pervasive voiceover. So, unfortunately, much as I should like this and there is some good acting, I have to say that The World to Come is a nay. Archive finish. The World to Come was deeply, deeply frustrating because the acting in it is exceptional. I strongly considered giving Catherine Waterston an honourable mention in my Oscar preview show for Best Actress, and I do think that this year Vanessa Kirby should have won Best Actress for Pieces of a Woman. Not that Frances McDormand is unworthy, I mean, it's totally deserving that Frances McDormand won, but my personal preference by hair's breadth would have been Vanessa Kirby. So here are two outstanding actors, ably supported by Casey Affleck and Christopher Abbott. And they're just not given the chance to act because of this stupid fucking voiceover, which is pervasive throughout the course of the film. I mean, yes, the prose is lyrical and beautiful, but it's not a fucking movie. It was so annoying. So yeah, some really, really good acting in The World to Come, but ultimately a really shitty movie, and it was so disappointing. So yeah, I do not recommend The World to Come. Home Movies Bad Hair is written and directed by Justin Simeon, who is a director I admire a lot. His previous film was Dear White People, and since then he has also done a TV series version of Dear White People for Netflix. And I did give Justin Simeon an honourable mention in my Raw Footage Awards for Best Original Screenplay for Dear White People, and I've been very, very curious to see what he comes up with next in the feature film world. And what it turns out he did is... He went the Jordan Peele route. He did a horror movie with a social conscience about the black experience. It is 1989, and a young black woman, Elle Lorraine, works as an assistant at a black music cable channel. 
she is meek and downtrodden and overlooked, despite the fact she has great ideas. They get taken over by other people, and she, despite clearly deserving it, hasn't been promoted in years. And her precarious position is made even worse by the fact a new management team takes over this channel. The incredibly white James Vanderbeek, alongside an ex-supermodel who has no experience of television, played by Vanessa Williams. And Vanessa Williams and James Vanderbeek want to polish this black music channel culture into a much more whitewashed mainstream channel called Cult. And in order to get along in this new working environment, Elle Lorraine goes against the wishes of her two best friends who also work at the station, Yanni King Monshine and the brilliant Lena Waithe, and decides to get one of these brand new things for 1989, a weave. So she goes to hairdresser Laverne Cox and gets this weave with beautiful hair of mysterious origin. And once she gets this new straightened white style hair, her career starts to take off but it starts to become apparent that this brand new hair maybe has a mind of its own and maybe has a taste for blood. And I think that's a very nice metaphor. I mean, on first principles, it looks like that old Treehouse of Horror episode where Homer has a hair transplant and it starts killing people which is frankly rather a silly premise but it is a silly premise with some genuine commentary to it i mean here is a working environment which is metaphorically sucking the soul out of black music and repackaging it in a more palatable, more white-friendly way. So why not literally suck the blood out of the music industry and repackage it that way? I think the recreations of that era of music is brilliantly done and reading the credits it turns out the music was also written by justin simeon and in a couple of places performed by justin simeon so kudos to that but the main musician we see that l lorraine interacts with and this music channel interacts with is played by kelly Rowland, which is pretty damn awesome and her boyfriend is played by usher and the music video that Kelly Rowland and Usher do together in this late 80s, early 90s style is so pitch perfect. I've seen music videos that look almost exactly like that back in the day on MTV or you know, when there was still music on MTV and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, the ways in which black music was reappropriated and repackaged to be more palatable, to be more sanitized for a whiter audience 
Kelly Rowland demonstrates that brilliantly in these recreations music videos. And seeing how far El Lorraine is willing to go, you know, getting this weave, getting this white style hair, and how she is assimilating and you know doing anything to get ahead. If I want to actually be successful, if I want to actually present on this music channel, I need to conform, I need to fit in. And the expectation that black women put on other black women to conform, you know, if you get a weave, you might get on television. If you don't, you certainly won't. So there's pressure to conform. And you know, the paths that El Lorraine takes, you know, encouraging and almost shaming her, her friends to follow a similar path to her. I mean, the pressures of conformity from within and without the black female community are put on display here. And also putting yourself through pain for Western white beauty standards. The opening scene of this film is literally Elle Lorraine, or a younger Elle Lorraine, scarring herself for the sake of white beauty standards. And the scene where Laverne Cox actually puts the weave in, it's played more as a scene of torture than it is of hairdressing. I mean, I have only recently become aware over recent years just how culturally significant and important black women's hair is. And the lengths that black women have had to go through over the years to conform to Western white beauty standards, it's really disturbing. But that's what has happened consistently, you know, the need to conform, the need to assimilate. And Laverne Cox, I mean, basically torturing this person, I mean, and, you know, secretly knowing that this hair is going to turn her into a monster, it's played as a scene of torture. And it's really fascinating putting it in that context in this kind of film. And I also think it's a little bit strange that Laverne Cox doesn't come back later in the film when, you know, the shit hits the fan. There's ample opportunity for Laverne Cox to come up and give a bit of exposition, but she doesn't. So I wonder if they only had Laverne Cox for a very limited number of days, maybe one or two days. But either way, it's awesome seeing Laverne Cox as this hairdresser who is gradually seeping into this black music station as more and more people get these weaves, more and more people conform to what Vanessa Williams wants. It almost gets a bit Stepford Wives at a certain point. You know, I shall be the perfect, presentable black person that white people aren't scared of. I must conform, I must assimilate. It's actually kind of creepy, and the metaphor absolutely works. And I also think the sexual politics of this film are rather interesting as well. I mean, Elle Lorraine is in a relationship with one of the male VJs, played by Jay Farrow. And the more we spend time with them, the more we realise that Jay Farrow was just exploiting Elle Lorraine's ideas and stringing her along, basically. 
as far as he was concerned, it was a hookup. And as far as she was concerned, it was a relationship. And she stood back and let Jay Farrow get on television, take all the credit. And too late, she realised she's been used. She's been trodden upon. Next rung up the ladder for Jay Farrow. So the sexual politics of this is also very interesting. I mean, there's some casual slut-shaming going on as well. I mean, that's not the main focus of this film, which is very much about black and white beauty standards and the need for assimilation. But it is there, and I think it's a nice thing that Justin Simeon took time to have a little bit of that as well. But actually, I mean, Jay Farrow and Usher are really the only two major male characters in this film. Oh, apart from Elle Lorraine's father, Blair Underwood. It's always causing Blair Underwood. And that's another pressure being put on Elle Lorraine, is that her entire family, I mean, it's never explained why, but she lives with her uncle and aunt and her cousin. But her uncle and aunt her cousin have all got degrees. Her, her uncle's a professor. So they all have an education and intelligence and are mildly disapproving of El Lorraine going into television. But they do know a lot about slave folklore and which is the root of this whole living hair thing. So having that idea of the slave law and culture from black people being erased and overlooked for centuries, for generations, and even today. I mean, the fact that this TV station is being changed its name from culture to cult. I mean, I think that's significant in a couple of ways. I mean, for the culture is you know, a black aphorism. And specifically at one point, I think it was Lena Waithe, somebody says, but I think it was Lena Waithe, culture is dead. And I think that was a significant statement to make. But yeah, I mean, Blair Underwood is the other male character in this film, and he is mildly disapproving of his niece's pursuits. But with those three relatively minor characters, pretty much everybody else in this film, the major roles, are all women. And I think that's significant because this is about conformity. It is about assimilation. It is about beauty standards and how dangerous they can be. And overall, I think this film really does work. I will say that towards the end, when the shit really hits the fan and there's gigantic living hair, you know, Medusa-style hair all over the place, it does get a little bit silly. The visuals are a little bit comical. I don't think the budget was quite there to do the CGI properly. And it does get a little bit silly. It is one of those situations, I think, where the premise, the basis for the film is excellent. But when it came time to explain it, when it came time to process what is actually happening, what needs to happen in order for this plot to work, maybe it didn't work quite so well. And there's some aspects right at the end which make absolutely no logical sense, but you know, it's a horror film, so how are you supposed to 
keep everything straight. So, yeah, the plot falls down a little bit at the end, and the effects fall down a tiny bit at the end. But that's really a secondary concern for what is a film which I think fits right alongside Get Out, in that it is a horror film, a film with genuine horror tropes, which also makes biting and relevant comments about black culture, particularly the assimilation of black women for generations, for centuries. So I did really like Bad Hair. This is available through streaming platforms over here in the UK. In America, it's available on Hulu. It falls down a little bit at the end, so I can't fully get behind it. But it is still a very entertaining, recommended, high meh. Netflix and chill. Tragic Jungle is a Mexican film directed by Yulaine Olaizola, who has directed a few feature films in her past, some of which seem to have done well at festivals, but none of which have been officially released in the UK, as far as I can tell. But this latest film, Tragic Jungle, premiered at the Venice Film Festival, where it was nominated for the Horizons Award, handed out to up-and-coming filmmakers, and it was also nominated for the Horizons Award at the San Sebastian Film Festival as well. So two heavyweight festival runs for this particular film, and off the back of that, it has been snapped up by Netflix, which happens so often in the modern world. It is 1920, and we are on the Rio Hondo in the middle of the dense Central American rainforest. On one bank of the Rio Hondo is the Yucatan province of Mexico. On the other bank of the river is British Honduras, which in modern day is Belize. On the English-speaking side of this river barrier, a young woman, Indira Ruby Andrewin, is running away from an arranged marriage to a man who we eventually see, and he turns out to be a rather typical and rather violent colonial type, wearing the uniform for this time and place for a colonial overlord, a white suit and a white Panama hat. Very much the man from Del Monte, if anybody still gets that reference. But Indira Ruby Andrewin is running away from this man, Dale Carley, into the middle of the Central American forest, and reluctantly crosses the river and ends up in the Mexican, i.e. Spanish-speaking, side of this barrier, where she runs into a group of robber tappers, some of them in charge and Spanish-speaking Mexicans, led by Gilberto Barraza, some of them native Mayan-speaking workers, including Mariano Tonchul. And gradually, this female presence in this 
male environments in the middle of the jungle starts tensions rising. Not only the obvious sexual tensions of we are a bunch of men who have been away in the forest for months and now there's a woman here, but also, actually, if we work this right, maybe we can steal this incredibly valuable chicle, this rubber, from our boss, and maybe we can get away with this and make some money for ourselves and make thousands of times more than we would be if we just do what we were supposed to do and take it back to our boss. But also part of this dreamlike situation is this Mayan man's conviction. This Mayan man, Mariano Tanchul, he is convinced that this woman is not an English-speaking woman from across the river. She is the Chabe, a Mayan spirit, kind of like a siren type thing. A woman with long black hair and a long white dress who lures men away into the forest never to be seen again. And Mariano Tunchul is so convinced that Indira Ruby Andrewin is the Chabe that he wants absolutely nothing to do with her and nothing to do with this potential plan to steal all this valuable chicle. And in this phantasmagorical state, is this young woman simply somebody running away from a potentially violent marriage, or has she been inhabited by the Tsabe? It is up for the audience to decide, I guess. And yeah, it's a film which could be perceived as something genuinely supernatural. It could be seen as something where a woman finds herself in a desperately bad situation. You know, I am a young, relatively naive, attractive, very attractive woman surrounded by about a dozen horny men. Oh shit. I mean, and making the best out of that really, really bad situation. It could be either of those things. But constantly having this voiceover by this young Mayan man, Marano Tanchul, introduces us very early into the legend of the Tsabe and what potentially might be going on here. And the more it goes on, the more supernatural, potentially supernatural things happen. I mean, once Indira Ruby Androwin crosses the river and ends up on the Mexican side of the border, she no longer speaks. She doesn't say another word for the rest of the film. I mean, she is surrounded by people who don't speak English, and she's a lone woman surrounded by a dozen horny men. So it, it, it seems perfectly natural that she doesn't speak. But some of the things she does, some of the actions she takes whilst not speaking, possibly might lead you to believe that something supernatural is going on. Maybe she has been inhabited by the spirit of the Tsabe. And in one particular scene, there is something visible that hints at something supernatural, but it could be just the guy seeing here going crazy. In fact, I think that's the most likely explanation. Personally speaking, I don't think there's anything supernatural going on here. I think 
it's a woman making a best of dire circumstances and trying to survive. Yes, this is a film which eventually does go down the path of sexual assault. But equally, it's a weird kind of catharsis. And there is an interpretation of this film where, yes, I have been raped, but I find power, I find self-determination in this. I mean, it's going to happen, so I'm going to use whatever powers I have, whatever powers of manipulation, whatever powers of seduction I have, to make the best of it and play these people off against each other. And maybe I can get a better circumstance. I mean, because by the end of the film, They've got nearly half a ton of chicle, you know, this very valuable rubber tapping stuff, which they are planning to essentially steal and smuggle across the border back into British Honduras. And it all gets a bit treasure of the Sierra Madre. You know, people don't trust each other. There's one scene, I, mean, I think the only interpretation of one scene is that one of the Spanish speaking people just strangles one of the Mayans to increase his share of the cut. I mean, these are people who are turning on each other anyway, so it just takes a little bit of a nudge, a little bit of manipulation, and suddenly they're killing each other, and I I don't have so many men to deal with. It could be that. So, yeah, it's a weird kind of empowerment, but arguably it is empowerment. And equally, it could be interpreted that Yes, she is genuinely inhabited by this Tsabe spirit. Because we have been so fully introduced to this concept by the voiceovers. And it says in the credits that this film was directed by Elaine Olaizola and co-written by Elaine Olaizola alongside Ruben Imaz, who has also co-written a lot of her films. But there's also a credit saying this is inspired by the poems of Antonio Mediz Bolio. Now, he was a poet in the early, early 20th century, you know, pre-First World War, Mexico. He was, you know, the family of a, a powerful political family in the Yucatan, and he was also an ethnographer. He gathered together Mayan legends and turned them into poems. And he wrote many poems about the Ktsabe. And I haven't been able to find this for sure because there's actually very, very little online in English about this guy or his poetry. But it seems that a lot of what Mariano Tanchul is saying during the course of these films, you know, when he is explaining what the Ktsabe is and what she does, I think that's actually paraphrasing the poems of Mediz Bolio. And having this poetic, this dreamlike attitude, this guy is absolutely convinced that this is the Tsabe and wants absolutely nothing to do with her. I mean, if we follow this woman, we will die. So where everybody else is, you know, lusting after her or pining after her, he wants nothing to do with this. You know, we're, we're going to die if we, we follow this. And having this situation where you know, the jungle is encroaching upon them, and the very fact that the opening lines of this film are this voiceover from this Mayan 
speaking man, Mariano Tanchul, which I'm pretty sure is either directly poems by Medes Bolio or paraphrasing poems by Medes Bolio. But he's speaking in Mayan, in a local Mayan dialect in the middle of the jungle. And then we have a lengthy sequence where Indira Ruby and Draywin is running away with two collaborators and they're speaking English because they're running away from British Honduras. And then we cross the border and we're speaking in Spanish. And these different languages and these different cultures, which are surrounded by this jungle, I mean, nobody fits in here. So it's perfectly right and perfectly understandable that the jungle fights back and maybe that's what's going on. So yeah, it's a very dreamlike quality. I mean, like I said, there's interpretations one way or the other. The final scene is beautiful and mysterious and I'm as far as my interpretation goes, it's completely fictional. I think there's somebody hallucinating and not actually seeing what he thinks he's seeing. But it's that kind of film where everything is up for question. I mean, is this real? Is this not? Does it matter? We're in the jungle. We're going crazy. We're paranoid about stealing stuff. We're paranoid about what might happen if you know, who you know, quote unquote owns this woman actually shows up. Everything's going crazy, and possibly there's Mayan mysticism involved as well, and all of it blends together really, really nicely. I think this is a fascinating film, which puts a somewhat feminist spin on these old legends, uh, you know, these siren-like legends from Mayan mythology. I think there is a level of empowerment here, which we might not necessarily have seen in previous generations particularly because it would be unlikely that a woman would have directed a film like this, but Elaine Elizola did. So I think there is empowerment here, albeit empowerment with at least one scene of outright sexual assault, which isn't too graphic, but I think it's a trigger thing that you should be aware of. So yeah, it's, it's a strange hypnotic film, and I actually rather liked it. And I do kind of recommend Tragic Jungle. If you're in the mood for something a little bit art house, a little bit hallucinatory maybe, but has some profound comments to make about the gender gap and about facing up against nature and nature fighting back, then yeah, I think Tragic Jungle is a film to check out. It is on Netflix. And for me, it's a solid, intriguing meh. Next up, we have the documentary on Netflix, Hating Peter Tatchell. This is produced, or executive produced, I'm not sure which, by David Furnish and Elton John, and is directed by Christopher Amos, who does have one or two shorts in his past, including a couple of documentary shorts, but Christopher Amos is much better known as the former editor-in-chief of Bent magazine, and he also runs a pretty successful gay club in Soho. So Christopher Amos is not a professional filmmaker, and it should be said right up front that he is a long-term friend of Peter Tatchell. Now, Peter Tatchell is one of those people I'm rather ambivalent about. 
in general, I like the message that Peter Tatchell spreads, but I'm not always comfortable with the methods he chooses to use. If you don't know, I mean, maybe there are people around who don't know, Peter Tatchell became notorious during the 1980s for public civil disobedience actions promoting the agenda of gay rights. He stormed Canterbury Cathedral during the Archbishop of Canterbury's Easter sermon. He ran public protests where men would kiss each other outside police stations and hand themselves in as sex offenders because at the time that was still illegal and disturbingly late that was still illegal. He ran protests about entrapment in cottaging and most notoriously he also outed several people, most notably some bishops who were publicly supporting the homophobic attitude of the Church of England at the time. And his group Outrage was, yes, a publicity machine, but perhaps not the best kind of publicity. So the the aggressive, take-no-prisoners-by-any-means-necessary attitude of Outrage needed to be balanced by the more sedate, more political-minded gay rights organisation, Stonewall. And I find it incredibly interesting that the majority of this documentary, or at least the, the structure upon which this documentary has been built, is a lengthy interview, talking head interview, between Peter Tatchell and Sir Ian McKellen. Peter Tatchell, public face of Outrage, and Sir Ian McKellen, public face of Stonewall. In very much the same way that you know, Malcolm X was by any means necessary and Martin Luther King was political solution, Ian McKellen was MLK in that metaphor and Peter Tatchell was Malcolm X. And I find it curious that Sir Ian McKellen's one of his more famous roles is Magneto, which is effectively a metaphor for Malcolm X. So he's in the opposite side of that particular barrier in that fictional universe. But anyway, these two people who respect each other, have clashed against each other over the years, don't see eye to eye on a lot of stuff. But there is a level of, of respect and camaraderie there. And having Sir Ian McKellen there to ask the mildly confrontational questions, having this differing perspective from what Peter Tatchell has done in the past and is still doing. The film culminates, more or less, with Peter Tatchell going to the World Cup in Russia in 2018 and having a protest in Red Square. It has to be said, not a particularly large or impressive protest, but he did it, he got arrested, he got his message out. And God knows what he's going to do in Qatar next year. But anyway, Peter Tatchell has always been confrontational, and there is a level of respect there, but asking him the mildly confrontational questions, 
I mean, there's basically nobody in this documentary who agrees with the most notorious thing that Peter Tatchell did, which was outing all those bishops. Nobody thinks it was a good idea. But Peter Tatchell is saying, you know, it, it progressed the movement, it needed to be done, and I don't care what you think about me. And I have to say, speaking personally, I mean, my family has been part of the gay rights movement for years. I mean, I was on gay rights marches in nappies, the gay rights march, which is at the end of the film Pride, I was on. And my mother tried to pick herself out of the first gay pride parade that she was on and Peter Tatcher was on when she watched this documentary with me. So, yeah, I am fully supportive of equality and gay rights and all that, but I struggle with publicly outing people against their will. And many people do as well. And that is the one thing that, that I struggle with Peter Tatchell. Great though he is, publicity hound though he is, and you know, egomaniac though he clearly is, he still gets stuff done. He still knows how to work the system and get attention in the corners he wants. And you know, his antagonistic approach to the media and to the public how dare you do these things, you filthy pervert, when he was outing stuff and when he was storming Canterbury Cathedral during the Easter sermon. And Archbishop George Carey, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, and actually before that he was the Bishop of Bath and Wells, although he, as far as I know, didn't eat babies. But I was very familiar with George Carey before he was Archbishop of Canterbury. but. He's in this documentary and is, all things considered, rather sanguine about the whole experience he had with Peter Tatchell. So, yeah, I mean, George Carey actually has quite a lot to answer for. There's a lot of stuff out there that he covered up some sexual abuse scandals in the Anglican Church. I mean, everybody talks about the Catholic Church and their sex abuse scandals. But George Carey, in particular, seems to have covered up some really nasty stuff in his time as the Archbishop of Canterbury. But, yeah, seeing how George Carey reacts to Peter Tatchell now, and seeing how everybody reacts to him, I mean, people like Tom Robinson, the actual person who runs Stonewall, rather than Ian McCann being the, the figurehead. I mean, Angela Mason is her name. And she is just increasingly exasperated with Peter Tatchell. But, I mean, they knew each other way back when, when Peter Tatchell was a 19-year-old Vietnam War protester fresh off the boat from Australia. So Angela Mason knows him and respects him, but you know, doesn't necessarily agree with his methodology. And the exasperation that Angela Mason clearly feels with Peter Tatchell it's rather interesting to see. So here is this figure who, yes, probably is doing good, but is burning bridges along the way, not caring who he hurts, you know, blowing everything up along the way. And eventually he turns from, oh, that aggravating puff to a national treasure in one action. When he tries to perform a citizen's arrest, on Robert Mugabe, 
for torture. And in the course of trying to give a citizen's arrest to Robert Mugabe, got repeatedly punched hard by thugs associated with Robert Mugabe, to the extent that to this day he suffers vision loss and brain damage. And his doctors said he shouldn't go to Russia because if he has any more head injuries, he could well die. But at the age of well past 60, he's not going to change. He's just going to carry on doing it. And to some degree, God bless him for doing so because somebody needs to. And seeing all the things that he is now protesting about against the war in Syria, against Robert Mugabe, against the Russian state and their LGBT policies, I mean, anything he can protest about, he will do so. He has a face, he has a voice, he's going to do it. And I just can't help admiring him, even though I am still ambivalent about some of his methods. But this documentary is a great place to start. I mean, yes, it was directed by one of his friends. It doesn't ask some really uncomfortable questions. It's definitely from his point of view and no other. But you can't help but admire somebody like Peter Tatchell for what he has done and what he remains doing for the sake of equality, for the sake of freedom. He's a complex man, and this is a solid documentary. I mean, it's not a great piece of filmmaking or anything, but it's interesting, it's informative, it's the kind of thing that, that pumps you up and says, yes, let's get out there and do something. And yeah, I suppose that's what it was intended to do. So, Hating Peter Tatchell, available on Netflix, is a solid documentary which I do basically recommend, particularly if you're not particularly familiar with Peter Tatchell. And for me, it is a solid, reasonably high. Eh. Coming attractions. I still have a very, very long list of stuff which I want to get to. But since this is, to some degree, a bonus episode, I'll just give you the highlights. Cinematically released this week, I still have to watch the new M. Night Shyamalan film, Old, and the Danish revenge grief thriller, Riders of Justice. And I'll just go through what I've already got downloaded onto my tablet to watch from the streaming platforms. We have The Green Sea, the low-budget psychological thriller directed by an Irish aristocrat. The Green House, the Australian film about the dangers of nostalgia. Tell No One, in which two teenage boys are the only people who know of a security guard in a well in the forest, so what do they do about that? A Perfect Enemy, in which a young woman confronts an architect with his past misdeeds at a airport. And Long Weekend, two 20-somethings drifting through life, having a magical weekend together, but there are revelations to be told. On Netflix, my highest priorities are the David Aiello-directed film The Waterman, in which a young boy searches for a mythical urban legend in order to cure his sick mother. Prime Time, the Polish thriller in which 
an armed young man takes over a Polish television station at the dawn of the millennium. America, the motion picture, the crass adult animation from one of the guys who did Archer. And good on paper, Eliza Schlesinger's autobiographical film about somebody she was in a relationship with who turned out to be a complete liar. So those are my highest priorities, and some of that will be in the next standard episode, which theoretically should be coming pretty soon. But in the meantime, I do urge you to try and find two of us in cinemas. You might be able to find it. If not, it is available through Curzon Home Cinema, or you can just wait for it to come cheaper on streaming. But however you see it, I think two of us is an outstanding film. I thoroughly recommend it. It's probably going to be one of my top 10 films of the year. So do check that out. And all that remains for me to say in this episode is this has been Yay Nay Omer, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I will see you next time where I shine a light on cinema both obvious and obscure.